Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we have a guest who has developed a powerful way to help you get closer to yourself, your friends, and your colleagues through thoughtful questions and inspired conversation. When an organization will come to us and say, look, we know we have a terrible or a toxic workplace culture, but that's not going to get solved today. So what we really need to do is just recruit more talent. That's a Band-Aid on something that needs surgery. At the end of the day, that doesn't look good for us, and that doesn't help you with the bigger issues at hand. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we've got a great interview. CEO of Subrosa, Michael Ventura, has written a book called Applied Empathy. Ventura is going to explain to us how leaders and also workers in their businesses can explore, learn, and grow through deeper understanding. And guess what? If you get there, you may even actually be able to perform better. Here's our interview with Michael Ventura. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Michael Ventura is the author of a new book. It's called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. Now, Michael, you are the founder and CEO of Sub Rosa. But let me start the interview with a much more important question. You Mm -hmm. ready? Just because you're sort of a careerist kind of guy and a consultant kind of guy. Sure. What is the best career decision you've ever made? Working for myself. Really? Was it hard to make that decision? So I was 23 when I made that decision. So there wasn't a lot of data to the contrary. Um, I had worked for a year at an agency that went through a round of layoffs. I was part of the layoffs. And I grew up in a family where the my father's side of the family were all entrepreneurs. And so I had sort of some permission there, I think, just psychologically to think about that. And I just launched out on my own at 23 with a buddy and started what became and evolved into Sub Rosa. I mean, it's essentially been the same business, not always the same brand name, but the same thing. And what is it that you do exactly? So we're a brand strategy consultancy. How do you know to be, to be I want to be a brand consultant when I'm 23? Well, it's funny. So when we were 23, it was the dot-com bubble had just burst. And we were sitting around talking with these organizations that would let us weasel our way into a conversation. And we were the age and we were the psychographic that they were all trying to reach. Ah. So our consulting began helping them understand how to reach us. And so it was the only place we had credibility at that point. Uh, But as the business grew and as we grew as thinkers, we were able to expand that service offering into other places as well. So how do you think you became adept, not just talking about your own generation, but thinking about branding among all the different generations. To me, that is actually where empathy plays the biggest role. And interestingly, we're we're in this weird generation. Um, I've done a lot of eccentric research on this topic, but there's generational theorists talk about different markers of generations and how one ends and another begins. So we all know what the boomers are. We all know what Gen X is. We all know what millennials are. There is this little window of time from 78 to 84 that generational theorists debate hotly as to, is that the end of X? Is that the beginning of millennial? Is it Gen Y, which they used to call it at one time? Right, now they don't. To t- y? So, uh, so this is the question. So I am in that zone. I am, I'm born in 1980. And so I actually have found that people born from 78 to 84 sit in a small demographic. There's not a lot of us. There's a lot of Gen X. There's a lot of boomer. There's a lot of millennial. 
But our job is really to be translator between all of those different generations because we were the first born, uh, we were born analog. Like I had Encyclopedia Britannica's and I rode my bicycle and I, you know, didn't have a computer and didn't have a phone growing up. But I also was the first generation to receive a formal digital education. Like I had a computer lab. We kind of had the like the version 1.0 of that. So we're this weird hybrid. How interesting. So I wonder if the the idea that you don't have a natural drift one way or the other maybe puts you in a place where you can tap that empathy and be able to apply it more evenly. Yeah. What do you think of that? That's our theory for today. I think it's a good theory. I find myself in in a whole host of different conversations, whether I'm talking to millennials who are saying they don't understand, their bosses don't understand them, and they can't figure out why this organization works the way it does. And we can offer a different perspective on how to build workplace culture that is oriented towards giving them the right information they need. Let's go back to empathy for a second. Yeah, please. So give me your definition of empathy. So... Applied empathy, we define as self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. Empathy writ large has a lot of definitions, okay? And has a lot of misdiagnosis too. When I go in a room and talk about empathy, the first thing often I hear is, are you here to tell me to be nicer to people? And, <laughs> and Oh my God, don't <laughs> yeah, do God that. God forbid, right? Um, and what it comes down to is there are three types of empathy, generally speaking, from like a psychological standpoint. There's what's called affective empathy with an A, and that's like golden rule empathy. I, I've been sad before. I know you're sad. I'm going to treat you the way I would have wanted to be treated when I was sad. Wait a second. I thought that was sympathy. I thought that the, that sympathy is I've experienced it and therefore I can now push back to you, whereas empathy, you didn't have to go through that same experience. So affective empathy is a little different in, in than sympathy. Sympathy is I feel sad for you right. and what you're going through, but you don't necessarily have to reflect what, what you would have done. Okay, I got it. The, the folly with effective empathy is that it puts you in the conversation. What if when you're sad, you want to be left alone, but when I'm sad, I want to be consoled and talked to, right? Mm-hmm. So inherent in that, like we're going to have a misconnection, right? right. Um, somatic empathy is like when people talk about feeling sympathy pains when their spouse is pregnant or something like that, like the physical body. Mm-hmm. Neither of those really have a have an easy place in business, right? Right. The third type, which is what applied empathy is built upon, is cognitive empathy. And this is really training the muscle of your ability to get out of yourself, get out of your frame of reference, and really see the world from someone else's. Now, can I just go, let's go deep shrink for a second, right? If your family of origin is one where there was no empathy, Mm -hmm. that your parents were not empathic parents or human beings, are you more or less likely to have the empathy gene or skill or awareness? Specifically around cognitive empathy, I think it's trainable no matter what. Really? That's good to know. Yeah, I do. I think that... Affective empathy would be harder, right? Because if that wasn't mirrored for you as a child and that didn't imprint in sort of the like you have to think about yourself and think about other people, yeah. that's a different thing. But with cognitive empathy, I mean, we work with large organizations that have a whole litany of folks uh, who work there who for some, you know, their their first instincts are not empathic. But what I think about it, it's like a muscle you train. If you practice with it enough, it starts to become more refined. It starts to become more second nature. Okay. So let's talk about how you stumbled upon this because Mm -hmm. this is not something you study in school or even discovered when you're 23. So how did you 
come to get in touch with us? So 23 to 28, uh, basically, I started to build this business with a partner. It got to a decent size. Then the financial crisis hit in 08, and everyone ran for the hills. Mm -hmm. And I found myself sitting with this business that had been doing good consulting work and also good design work for brands, but we really didn't know who we were. We were just good tacticians, right? And so now all the partners had scattered, and I was there by myself thinking about, well, what am I going to do with this thing? And put together a project team and said, look, let's go back over the years of work we've done so far and let's really dissect it and understand what made our good work good, what made our not so good work not so good. When you say team, how many people were there? So uh, We went down to, we were about 50, we went down to about 10. Okay, so it's you and nine guys partner. You're, you're the, I'm the, the sole partner so at this, this point. So this, the other guy got out. Yep. Okay. Me and and, uh, and a fellowship of nine uh, basically begin this this process of looking back at all the old work. And there's a couple themes that emerge, but truth be told, like nothing really crystallizes then. Fast forward another three years of now kind of being out of the recession, doing more work. We do it again. And when we do it that time, empathy starts to really show its face as the theme of the work that we do. That's great. And what I mean by that is when we look at the work, we realize when we didn't sit in a room and shut the door and say, wouldn't it be cool if... But instead, when we opened the door and said, let's go talk to people, let's go ask them what they want. Let's go really put ourselves in their perspective. Our work got better every time. Explain how that practically occurs when you get a client. Let's mm-hmm. just let's make it up. So Mark and Jill have a production company and we generate content and we've got whatever, a couple hundred people. How would applied empathy be put into the conversation with us. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we'd want to understand are who are the different constituent groups you interact with? Because you can't just say our audience because your audience is way too broad, right? So there's probably subsets of that. Mm-hmm. So what do they care about? Do some people want quick information fast? Do other people want to be taken on a journey of the story? Do other people, you know, like the the ritualization of this, right? Like what are what are the behaviors that drive that? And then also thinking about, well, Mark's a customer. Right. And, yes. and and he's a consumer. A demanding and, one, by yeah. the way. <laughs> um, and Marcus, your advertiser and all of like and why do they care? Right. Mm-hmm. So all of those things have to be considered as well. And then you build a map around that and then you say, OK, with all of that understanding, what's the right choices? Oh, that's interesting. And so when you are having these conversations with organizations, what's the pushback that you get besides like, oh, you're not uh, going to tell me to be nice. Yeah. What, what's the what's the next level of how pushback? do you measure it? Oh, OK. This is great. <laughs> yeah, because. This is one of like those weird things that everybody wants measurement. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes emotions can't be measured. So what do you respond to yeah. that with? So you, you can't measure in an organization empathy squarely, right? Unless you're putting like brain sensors on people, right? And, and even then, I don't think that that's data. That's not information. The, the best way to measure it is what are the knock-on effects of bringing this into the culture and into the, the mm-hmm. fabric of an organization. And some of the things we see, um, recruitment goes up of better talent and retention of top talent is increased, right? You actually start to build a culture of people who want to be there because they feel like their perspective is valued. Um, you start to see high-functioning teams emerge because these teams are actually working more uh, deftly together because they understand each other's working style. They understand the consumers and the problems better. And all of a sudden, you start to get better output. Um, you start to see that organizations writ large start to become more nimble, more agile. Like if the market tips, they can move with it. Or might, they may have even predicted it a couple weeks earlier because they're listening better and their touch and feel of the marketplace is better because they're having these conversations. So how do you train these people? Because I think mm-hmm. this is a great 
desire, a great goal. And I even imagine that you could be with a senior management team who's making the decision to hire you or not. Yep. And they are like, yes, sounds great. Then what do you do? What do you do? Right? What do you do? So depending on what the work is, if we're doing training work to really bring this into the culture of an organization, much like how human-centered design and design thinking isn't a linear process, but it's a toolkit, right? There are a variety of different methodologies and frameworks and things you can use. That's essentially how we've approached applied empathy. So one of the first things we tell people is if you can't have empathy for yourself and really understand what's going on with you, it's going to be really hard to do that for someone else. What if these people have not been therapized? So this is like, this is a very benign way of starting that process, right? As New Yorkers, we know what going to therapy is like, but not everyone does. And so, um, you know, one of the things, I'll give you an example. So I was with uh, a team yesterday morning actually. And I asked them all to sit up in their chair and we talk about different aspects of the self when we're talking about empathy for the self, because it's not just you as your entirety. We have the physical self, your emotional self, your inspired self, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning, all of these different things. So I said to them, sit up nice in your chair and take a slow, deep breath. And they did. And I said, when's the last time you did that? And some of the people in the room said, man, it's been weeks, maybe wow. months. And I said, most of you move your bodies around like they're an Uber taking your mouth and brain to meetings, right? Like you, you have no consciousness for how your body feels. And, and maybe that's a way to connect to something in a different way. Another quick example, I was with a, a nonprofit a couple weeks ago, 200 people in the room. And I asked everyone to think about the most common emotion they feel at work. Everyone thinks about it. They've got it in their head. I say, now close your eyes. Raise your hand if it's a negative emotion. Of 200 people... 85%, 90% of them, hands went up in the air. And I said, now open your eyes and look around. And when they did, they realized we are all really upset. We are all coming to work with a, a pit in our stomach. Mm. We need to do something about this. All of a sudden, their understanding for the problem became bigger than themselves. And they had a common enemy. So what's interesting about that is that you're demanding that people show up emotionally. And I think that that's sometimes can be a tough sell. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to go back in time. You know, 20 years ago when I was running an investment management firm, I had a bunch of people there and my uh, business partner was worried because he felt like some of the salespeople were not connecting with clients mm -hmm. in a way that was authentic. Yep. We didn't really have the language for this. We hired a coach to come in and we had a number of people who were really resistant to it. Yep. You know, one guy basically quit and said, I, I didn't I don't come to work to go to therapy. So how do you draw a line between sure. the the therapeutic process and what's really useful to you at work? Yeah. So two part answer to that. The first part is I think any good culture in an organization is going to operate like a magnet and it's going to repel as much as it attracts. Right. And that's a good thing. If you're if you have a culture that's neutral, then you don't have a culture. Right. And so I think uh, like Bridgewater, who's who's an organization we've worked with in the past, is notorious for their culture. Um, and it is a very polarizing one, but it's an excellent one if that's the culture you're looking for. The second part of this question is actually with an investment group. So New York Life Investments is a client of ours. Mm -hmm. And we just went through a process with them to really think about how do their salespeople connect with the people on the other side of the table more meaningfully. Mm -hmm. And one area that they've had a gap, and it's not just them, I think it's every organization in this space, uh, is women in investing. And the, the fact that even it's, it's phrased women in investing is instead of just like people and investing is part of the problem, right? And one of the interesting stats that has emerged in this research is that 80% of women who find themselves, quote unquote, suddenly single, that's not our term, uh, which is either recently widowed or divorced, um, change their investment banking relationship within 18 months. Right. 
And that's because they haven't been spoken to as an equal throughout the entire process. I have another tip for you with the New York Life people. Yeah. Use this. Let's not tell them about yeah, it. Secret. Okay. My biggest concern and criticism of the insurance industry is that you have a phenomenal solution to many problems, but not all problems. Yeah. And what I find completely annoying about that industry specifically, I don't know about those people at New York sure. Life, I'm just saying in general, is that their salespeople are so salesy. They refuse to walk away from a situation when insurance is not the right mm-hmm. solution. And so now what you do is you breed an entire culture where all you want to do is sell crap. And now you have a bunch of people who are sold stuff who call a show like mine or come to a certified financial planner or go to somebody else and say, oh, my God, that was horrible. That guy sold that to you. It's like completely what you. So how do we get people to separate their interests from the interests of the customer, even if they are not legally mandated to do so? Because how do we make that? This is actually good business. Listen, tell Michael he does not need whole life. Tell Michael he just needs term life insurance right. and you're going to make less money. How do we get people to get there? Well, one is by seeing the long view on the long term relationship you're building. Right. If, if you max out someone's investment and you, and you sell them everything that, you know, that's in the kitchen sink, they might do that. And then they might seek counsel and they might decide that that was I was sold a bill of goods. And then you're going to lose that customer entirely. So what's the long term value of doing those sorts of things? And so it's not about the immediate transaction. It's about how are we cultivating long term relationships? and long-term customers for the business, uh, that's that's one really key aspect of a lot of the work we do is if you're doing this work well, you're building a long game for your business. This is Jill on Money. We'll get back to our interview in just a second. Now, if you've been listening to this show, you probably recognize that it's me, Jill, Jill Schlesinger. I'm also a certified financial planner a CBS News business analyst, and yes, the host of this podcast called Jill on Money. Okay, today I am here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Despite the taboo, money is not only personal, it is social. Marcus serves up financial tips, insights, and inspiration to help you get better about your finances. And you can join in on the conversation by following at Marcus by Goldman Sachs on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or at Marcus on Twitter. Every follow is a financial step in the right direction. You can money. And now more of our interview with Michael Ventura. All right, we now know that there's, I don't know, let's just put it rough, like that there's probably a third of people out there working who have some sort of side hustle Mm -hmm. or side gig. How can applied empathy work for them? With side hustles generally, um, they are all derived out of passion, right? No one, no one has a side hustle because they are, you know, in, unless it's a second job and it's a second income, which I, don't, I think is different, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about a side hustle, it's because that's what you love. I was talking with a woman recently about this and she said, I've been working on this thing, you know, nights and weekends. I love it so much, but, you know, my job is just draining my energy. And I said, well, have you thought about what life would be like if that wasn't your side hustle, but your actual hustle? And she said, well, no, because I I can't get that kind of perspective. I'm kind of trapped in this job. And I said, well, go talk to five people who do it. And right. And that's just empathy. That's just practicing it. That's like, go have a conversation with someone who actually has that as their job. And I saw her last week and she said, you know what? I think I might actually do it. I've seen that now having talked with those people, I can do it. So it's a motivator. How can you look at applied empathy 
in terms of you're an organization and you want to breed it in your organization. Mm -hmm. I bring you in, you do all these exercises, you talk to people, but then how do I keep it going? How do I hold people accountable to it? So we have a couple different ways of doing that. First of all, it's got to come from the top. If this is some mid-level initiative or it sits in one division of an organization, it's not going to permeate the whole fabric of the company. So, so it's, it can't be like, oh, it's an HR thing. Yeah, no, no, no. Because then everyone's been to those HR things and they're, you know, your eyes roll so far in the back of your head sometimes when you sit in those. Um, and a lot of our clients are chief human resources officers, but they will sit at the table with a chief brand officer or a chief marketing officer or a CEO and say, look, we have to do this as an organization. So that's one thing. It has to come from the top down. But another thing is you have to be willing to change the way performance is evaluated sometimes in order to incentivize people to behave this way in the initial phases of it. So we just worked with a client where we actually retooled their performance and evaluation system that when you're peer reviewed and when your director reviews you, part of your review criteria that will determine if you get a promotion or a raise is, are you operating empathically? Do your colleagues believe that you're an empathic leader? Do they, do do you take the time to understand your consumers? How many consumers have you met with this year? What type of research have you done? All of that sort of stuff actually folds into their perf and it's actually a whole way of thinking about it. Do you think anyone can fake empathy? I think that the cracks and fissures of it will show in the long run. You might be able to fake it in a meeting, right? You might be able to fake it for a minute or two. The other thing about empathy that's important to remember is particularly cognitive empathy is neutral. So it is not always a good thing. And so there, it comes with a moral obligation. It comes with a set of principles that you have to be mindful of because if you look at what companies like, an example I often give is Cambridge Analytica practiced a form of manipulative empathy in the last election cycle. They basically said, we understand consumer behavior of this this segment that this client wants to target, mm-hmm. and we are going to feed them certain information to alter their behavior, right? That's nefarious, but it is a form of cognitive empathy, right? They they took that deep understanding and used it to perform, a, a, a to deliver a solution. What's a hard client for you? Like when you think, don't name names, but I'm yeah, just saying no. <laughs> like a type of hard client. Like what is, who presents a bigger problem for you that maybe you would say, I can't help you? I think organizations who are aware of the fact that what they need to solve, they don't want to do. So they're looking for a way around it, not through it. And so when an organization will come to us and say, look, we know we have a terrible or a toxic workplace culture, but that's not going to get solved today. So what we really need to do is just recruit more talent. Help us build that strategy. Like that's like, that's a bandaid on something that needs surgery. And we will have those conversations and say, look, if you're aware of that and you're not willing to address that, we might be able to solve this problem, this, this secondary problem. And we might be able to derive some revenue off of that for our business. But at the end of the day, that doesn't look good for us. And that doesn't help you with the bigger issues at hand. And when that happens, that's not happening from the top. Most CEOs are not thinking that way. But a lot of other people inside organizations are incentivized for the short wins. They're not incentivized for the long game. It's hard. This is hard, hard work, work, right? Absolutely. So one of the things that I found, and, and I talked about this before we went on the air, is that when I was a financial advisor, I would be talking to people about the most intimate parts of their lives, right? Their money, but their yep. hopes and their dreams and their desires. And I would find myself getting pulled into their lives emotionally. And so somebody said to me, you know, you really are sort of hyper- empathic like Mm -hmm. you sometimes jump into someone's stuff and it's hard for you to get out of there 
and you got to let people just deal with their own stuff. How do you deal with a nutbag like me? <laughs> um, so and the, I bet you're a little bit like that. I've gotten really good at my borders now, um, but I think that's what led me into this was because I was also like I, you know, like wading into the deep end of other people's problems right. was like a very, uh, a, a very um, intellectually fascinating thing for me, right? But what I've I've learned is people have to want to help themselves at the end of the day. Like you can't just come in and fix a problem if they don't want the problem fixed. So I like to practice that work through inquiry and asking good questions as opposed to jumping to the solution, which I think is a tendency, particularly of New Yorkers, to sort of like, let's cut to the chase. Here's how we're going to solve this. Let's get on to the next thing. You know? <laughs> Move on. Come aboard with me or get yeah, off. Exactly. And instead, can we ask the right questions that might be helping lead them to the epiphany that they need to have in order to solve that? So that's one thing. The other one I'll add real briefly is I think that there is such a thing as ruinous empathy, which is like where empathy becomes the governing behavior of your life and where it is um, often uh, uh, a crutch to to not act, mm. but to actually just, oh, I understand exactly how you feel. And, and you kind of get into these like sympathetic whirlpools with people as opposed to using it as a the way we like to think about it, using it as an input to solve a problem. How do you um, deal with People, you were in the workplace and you have to deliver bad news. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, maybe you're not getting the promotion or I have to let you go. Yeah. And you want to have empathy for that person in the moment. But mm -hmm. like you said, you don't want to get dragged into that whirlpool or yep. dare I say rabbit hole yep. that you can go down with a person. Sure. What are some effective tools to help you with that? Lead with data. Don't lead with the, the emotional side of it. Say, look, you know, we, we are being tasked by cutting the workforce by 10%. And as a result of that, we've had to look at these five criteria across everyone on this team. And these are where you stack up relative to your peers, right? Like that is not debatable in the same way that you've been really great and we've loved working with you, but sorry, we've got to make, you know, like there's just, the, the, it brings too much personal. Okay. But wait a minute. Yeah. That presumes, and I, and I wish it were so that these organizations are making data driven decisions. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you're like, I'm Jill I'm, and you're my boss, Michael. And, um, I've been trying to get this, uh, promotion yep. and I don't get it. Yeah. And you don't have data. You basically know that six people whispered in your ear, Jill is just not ready. Or right. Jill is, I don't think she's got the stuff. And I think that's very typical of many businesses, 100%. right? Now, what are you going to tell me? Well, I think if you're not telling Jill that feedback and if Jill's not getting that feedback from her peers and if you're not willing to put the work into Jill, then you're doing a bad job as a manager. Yeah. And then someone's got to hold you accountable Absolutely for that. Absolutely right. I mean, what's your opinion about the non-data determination, because sometimes I feel like mm -hmm. women really get the short end of the stick on this, that, you know, well, she's very aggressive yeah. or, gee, she does this or she's so ambitious, which is like code word for actually she is ambitious. That's a good thing, yeah. you know, and but with a woman, it doesn't seem to be seen in the same way by a lot of men. Right. So how can we correct for some of those observations? So bare minimum, there should be... Um, training going on inside organizations to help undo the bad behaviors that people have picked up throughout their careers, right? 
going back to the top of this conversation, generationally, different things occurred that occur now, right? The societal norms are entirely different. Even in the last 18 months with Me Too and Black Lives Matter and other issues that have emerged, we have seen organizations who have never before talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion now coming to us and saying, we need to build a real strategy around this. We need to think differently about this. And that is a willingness to to start with training. And I think that that, that ability to train, and I'm not talking about like the, the, the fact sheet that you get that says, here's five ways to talk to something like, you know, everyone rolls their eyes when you get those sorts of things. But really, what does this organization's version of that need to be? Because it's got to be bespoke. It's got, you have to understand, going back to empathy, the nuances of this particular place. It's not a one size fits all. If you wanted to sort of make the world a more empathetic place and, and you wanted applied empathy to be operational, are there questions we should be asking ourselves besides like let's breathe or let me just yeah, think like what is that sure. person doing in that there how how's it going over there in his skin so first and foremost have you asked them and i think that the problem is most people presume to know they don't actually ask because asking takes time it causes vulnerability. It may cause you to have an uncomfortable conversation. We don't like doing that sort of stuff as humans, right? We like to say, oh, you know, I've, I've talked to enough people about this and, and I know how they think. Maybe you haven't. And maybe it does require that extra conversation. What I tell people is empathy slows things down before it speeds them up right? You're going to have to take 15 extra minutes and have that conversation you don't want to have. You might have to fly across the country and go meet that person face to face and actually have a conversation that that you've been trying to do over email for 15 times and it hasn't worked, right? But if you make those investments in the short run, they do pay long-term benefits. What kind of questions? Like, tell me how you're feeling or what are you thinking? I think it's very case dependent, but I think questions that will help you put yourself in their shoes and understand the problem or understand the situation from a vantage other than your own. And so it's case dependent. It's too hard to be specific. But I think if you can think about what would I want, what do I want to know that I'm not getting from that person? Mm -hmm. And how do I get that in their own words from them, not me cognitively guessing? If you are in a, a situation with somebody, there is really no downside of slowing things down. I right. mean, you think time is very precious. I get that. But just stopping for a second and saying, yeah. so, Michael, what do you think about this? You know, tell me a little bit about how you're feeling. And yeah. if it's a customer, I, I always feel like you want to give them permission to ask you questions. You know, it's funny. I, I wrote a book uh, about personal finance. And in researching it, I would ask people, well, why didn't you ask your advisor yeah. these questions? Well, I didn't want to insult him. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to show that I was stupid. I didn't want to waste his, her time, yep. all those things. And what you're saying is if you if you do have a moment and you do ask questions – you're actually opening the door and allowing somebody to actually give you really valuable advice. Absolutely. It's 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 so critical. And on top of that, like those examples you just gave, I didn't want to waste their time. I, you know, I didn't want to look stupid. Those are all suppositions that that individual is making for themselves, right? The advisor wants to look smart. That's what they get paid to do, right? But th- we live in these mythologies of insecurity that we build in our own heads that we've got to kind of unpack and get over so that we can actually connect with people. All right. So listen, we started the interview. I said, best career decision. You said working for myself, which by the way, is also awful in many ways. Let's <laughs> yeah, be honest. No, sure. I, as somebody who has worked for herself it's, for a long time, it's just can be awful. It's the dog that caught the bus oh, and, and gosh. gets dragged. No a kidding. Bit. <laughs> um, what is the worst career decision you ever made? I would say not getting rid of a relationship that we knew was toxic. 
And oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good because that can be an employee. Mm-hmm. That can be a client. Yep. That's why I kind of rephrased yeah, it in yeah, my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that could be a partner. It could be a lot of things. It could yeah. be a lot of things. I'm, I had a behavior for a long period of time, uh, which was it'll get better. And that doesn't prove out to actually be the case if you're not going to actually do anything to make it better or if you're not willing to address and perhaps lose the lose the relationship by addressing it. I remember, funny you should say that, I remember like the, the moment I realized that I was actually maturing as an investment advisor was when I fired a client. And not because something horrible happened, like get out, you bad person. Right. But I, I realized, you know what? This isn't working. Yeah. Like I've been in bad marriages before <laughs> and I know what that feels like. And I know what it's actually saying to the person while things are still fine. You know what? It seems like you're really unhappy with what I'm doing. And it feels like I'm not really feeling satisfied that I'm serving you in the way you need. And maybe I can't. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. But you just have to be a grown up sometimes and say, okay, that's enough. Right. That's exactly right. You're listening to Jill on Money. Welcome to the Marcus Minute. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Joining us today, author Michael Ventura. You ready, Michael? I'm ready. Okay, number one. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Comfortable. What's always worth spending on? Happiness. What's the dumbest thing you've spent money on? A parking space in New York City. What sound comes to mind when you get a paycheck? Ah. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Martin Luther King. It's your last day on earth. You've got $100 in your pocket. What would you do with it? Go someplace where there's water. Michael Ventura. The book is called Applied Empathy. By the way, it's blurred by Ariana Huffington. Totally cool. (laughs) The New Language of Leadership. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Michael Ventura. Go check out this book, Applied Empathy. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday, sometimes a Friday bonus as well. If you'd like to subscribe, just go to Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, anywhere else you find your favorite podcast. Hey, and don't forget, leave us a rating if you wouldn't mind. I mean, only a good rating, obviously. If you'd like to get on the air with us, don't forget, you can always go to the website, jillonmoney.com. Click on the Contact Us button and we'll arrange to get you on live. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13 and our show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs.